You're listening to audio from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview, find more resources, or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org. Good morning, Parkview Church. Nice. Uh, my name is Andrea Gaston, and it is a privilege to serve on staff here as our women's director. And I'm going to be reading this morning from Luke chapter 4 um, from our passage today. 4 verses 1 through 15. And I'll be reading from the ESV. It says this And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you, then, will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Thank you, Andrea, for reading that for us. My name is Thomas, and I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, I would love to. Um, We are resuming our series in Luke this week, and uh, I'm looking forward to telling you all about it. Uh, So we are in Luke 4, and I'm struck as I read this, you know, seems like every few months, at least a couple times a year, there's the newest bombshell celebrity biography. Yes. And you won't be able to avoid hearing about it because that celebrity is going to go on every daytime talk show, free podcast, news show. They'll be talking to Oprah on the couch or whatever, telling about all the way they made their millions and the struggles that they went through and all the wisdom they've gained. Of course, at this point, they're usually about 22 years old, but lay all that to the side. We want to learn, you know, and often, you know, you buy these and lots of people buy them. Uh, and I think probably is sort of the dark side of our obsession with a celebrity. We sort of want to read about their triumphs, but what do we, what do we really want to read about? The, the lawsuit and all the dirty details and all, you know, and the, the, bat, the relationships that ended badly and everything, the bankruptcy and what really happened and what was there. And there's something dark about that, but there's something sort of understandable because it feels like we really learn a lot more about ourselves and about others in the way that we face trials, not so much in the way that we experience triumphs. Every one of us, I'm guessing, even as I share those, you're probably thinking, I can think of details in my life 
difficult situations that I went through, things that I faced, that I came through really well. I came through a different person. I grew and I, I learned a lot about myself and about God. And every one of us has painful moments we look back on with a lot of regret. Um, but today's passage shows us Jesus at a true low point. Uh, a low point. He's, and at that low point, his character comes out. And unlike all those sordid, you know, biographies, whatever, um, his character is not scandalous. It's marvelous. It's beautiful. It's courageous. And even though his example is so perfect that it, it might feel like it would just crush us with its expectations, when we read it properly, it actually should fill us with incredible hope. So that's what we can look forward to today. I'll remind you, just as we set out, that uh, we, I'll be mostly in chapter 4, verses 1 through 15, but I'll mention just briefly where we're coming from as we come into this passage. So if you look, either scroll up or look up, depending on how you're reading the Bible, um, up in chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, we get the report of Jesus' baptism. So Jesus is baptized by John along with all the others who are there to repent of sin. He's not there to do that, but to identify with God's people, the son of suffering, just as uh, we, have, we sang together. It says, The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So it's straight from that scene that we go to the temptation, even though we have this big genealogy in between. After what we have today, we hear about Jesus launching out into ministry, going into the synagogues in Galilee, and people are amazed at his wisdom and his teaching and so forth. And so today's passage stands between those two really significant events, baptism and his launch into ministry. What is the runway for Jesus to his, you know, teaching ministry and this huge mission that he has? It's a desert, it's temptation, it's hunger, it's thirst, it's, it's a low point. And so I think what Luke wants to draw our attention to is, is this very unique way that Jesus launches into ministry. Unlike anything we would have expected, nothing would have ended up in a, the cool celebrity biography. It is, he wants to show us what kind of savior Jesus is. Who is this man? He, he gives us in this passage an inside look into his character and into his identity. And so that's the question we're going to ask as we read. So just to orient you, what kind of savior is Jesus? What kind of savior is Jesus. So, we're going to need a lot of help to get through that. So, let's pray. Lord, we, we praise you. First of all, Lord, we praise you for your word. You have not left us in the dark about who you are. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word and ultimately through the word, the living word, who is Christ, your son. So, please help us now to learn Jesus by studying this passage. Give us eyes to see just how marvelous Jesus is. Give us ears to understand what you are saying. Lord, you are saying something today through your word. We know that. Um, help us to be receptive. Help us to insist on being receptive uh, even as we're listening now. Give us hearts ready to love you more, ready to change. Give us hands ready to obey all that you command. And do this all for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're asking, what kind of Savior is Jesus? And like we said, like I said, we'll start off with this uh, genealogy. So in verses 3, 23 through uh, 38, I'll read the beginning and the end and make a couple notes on what's in between. Verse 23 says, Jesus, we, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, see the parenthetical, as was supposed of Joseph. And Luke includes that, of course, because Jesus was the son of as was supposed and legally uh, the son of 
Joseph, but he was not biologically the son of Joseph. He was the son of Mary and the son of the Holy Spirit. So Luke is bringing back to us again, back to from the beginning of his gospel, the fact that Jesus is both fully human, he can identify with us and therefore suffer for us, be tempted in our place, and yet sinless. He is not touched by the stain of Adam's sin. Um, we then notice as we read through a couple of really significant characters from the whole Bible that are present in Jesus' genealogy. For instance, King David. And that's significant because God had promised King David uh, that his throne would be an everlasting kingdom. There would always be someone from his uh, line, from one of his descendants. And particularly, there's these promises about the shadowy future king who would not just have sort of a very significant reign, but would have an unending reign. And so all throughout the history of Israel, the question was, who, what kind of human king could have a kingdom that never ends? And, of course, Luke is showing us the answer is a king that dies and rises again and lives forever. That is Jesus. We also see uh, in verse 34 that Jesus is descended from Abraham. And so the promises that came to Abraham that, uh, about his descendants that would fill and bless the earth would be fulfilled through Jesus. And then finally, all the way down at the end, and this is pretty unique for a genealogy, we get this, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of Adam, the son of God, the son of God. And so obviously, you know, the Bible would tell us every one of us could trace our, our lineage, so to speak, back to Adam. But Luke does this. You, if you read the genealogy in Matthew, he doesn't do this, but Luke does this. It seems clear that he wants to show us that Jesus is a savior, not just for God's people, Israel, but a savior for all people. And so that's the first thing we can note from this genealogy. There's a lot more we could say, but We'll say this for now. Jesus is God's promised king. He's a savior for all people. All people. That's one of Luke's big emphases. So that tells us a lot about Jesus' identity, who he is. He is the proper inheritor of the, the throne of David, all the promises, all that. But let's move on. Move on to chapter 4, the main event of this passage, really. What kind of savior is Jesus in how do his temptations reveal it? Let's see. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, remember he was just baptized, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. Notice just right off the bat, the Spirit is mentioned twice here. Full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. So what's happened? The Spirit has descended on Jesus in this, in this strange form like a dove, it says, and now he's full of the Spirit and he's led by the Spirit. Luke wants us to see that everything that's about to happen and all of Jesus' ministry is an act of obedience to his Father through his Spirit within him. That's really important as we keep reading because the temptations are going to be for Jesus to step outside of his Father's influence, outside of the leading of the Spirit, outside of the power of the Spirit to do things on his own. And in certain cases, go directly against what God wants. In other cases, seem to be some kind of gray area, but clearly something that God does not want. So that's important to note. Let's read on. Verse 2, for 40 days he's tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry which may be one of the understatements of the Bible. <laughs> 40 days, no eating, and surprise, he is hungry. Um, and that's where we pick up. A quick little sidebar. Do you ever notice, for, it is harder to be, for example, kind to your friends, kind to your spouse, when you are hungry. Uh, in my household, sometimes we call this being hangry. I don't know if you've heard of this. Okay, it's a real thing. It's harder to be patient with your kids when you're at the end of an incredibly overstimulating day. You're tired. 
it's harder or it's easier to avoid certain websites at 9 a.m. rather than 9 p.m. You have probably made the discovery that Jesus is experiencing here that it is harder to remain spiritually faithful when you are physically depleted. And, and Jesus went into this time of temptation in, an, in, a, in a mode of, of spiritual depletion so that he could experience the worst of what we experience. Now, we should reverse engineer that and realize we need to keep that in mind as we try to live faithful Christian lives, that we should try to avoid circumstances that put us in a pinch when our bodies are physically depleted, when our emotions are physically depleted. But we should also see just how marvelous Jesus is. (laughs) He went through these things in this depleted state so that he can know exactly how you're feeling when you have to do that too. He is a king who never asks you to do what he has not done first. That is good news. Amen? Amen. This is a good king. All right, but continuing on. The the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, what exactly is the devil trying to tempt Jesus to do? Of course, turn the stone into bread. Seems pretty simple. Um, But, you know, after all, would it be so wrong for Jesus to turn a stone into bread? Uh, We'll read later in the Gospel of Luke that uh, Jesus uh, is faced with a situation where some 5,000 men, probably 10, 15,000 people are all very hungry. And what does he do? Makes bread for them. Okay, so, so, so making bread is not off the table. And yet in this case, this is not what he's supposed to do. Turn this stone into bread, but he's not... Uh, we, we might know, you know, he's going to do that. But the point is, Jesus is hungry not because he lacks the power to create food or the ability to find food. Jesus is hungry because he has submitted his power to the Father and the Spirit had led him to be hungry. You look back at those words, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And we'll see that formula again later. If you are the son, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, he says in the third temptation. The meaning, it's closer to something like, since you are the son of God. Being the son of God, why not turn this stone into bread? Why not use your power to satisfy your needs? Doesn't seem crazy. You are the son of God. He's not questioning whether he is. He's saying, what is the devil? And this is incredibly subtle. This is what he's saying. Is this how God treats his beloved son? Does God really want you to be hungry? Look at you. Is poverty and hunger and depletion, is that really, you think that's a sign of God's love for you? I bet this isn't what you thought you signed up for when you let yourself be led by the Spirit. Hunger. Surely, wouldn't wouldn't God want his beloved son to be well-fed? doesn't seem like a leap in logic, does it? Come on, Jesus. I mean, what kind of father doesn't want to feed his son? Aren't you his beloved? Maybe he wants you to sort of take some initiative here, you know, just step out of the spirit just for a moment, and and maybe he wants you to exercise a little independence. It's not like you don't have the power to do do so. I mean, one word, and you can be taken care of. I mean, you did it all those years ago. You created all those things. You can create a little bit of create a little morsel. Wouldn't God want his, his beloved son to just have a little morsel of food? I mean, does he want you to be happy or does he want you to be hungry? You see what he's doing? 
He's tempting Jesus to doubt his father's love, his father's provision, and to use his power to take care of his own needs, to satisfy himself using his power. And Jesus refuses, and he quotes God's word. Deuteronomy 8.3, he says, man shall not live by bread alone. He doesn't refuse because making bread is wrong. He'll do that later. He'll eat it. He refuses because there are human needs that go deeper than physical nourishment. Obeying God is more nourishing to your soul than bread is to your stomach. Jesus refuses because the reality of his life and yours is that it's better to be hungry within God's will than to be satisfied outside it. And we could apply that to every situation. It is better to experience pain within God's will than to be comforted outside it. It is better to be sad and led by God than to be happy outside of it. Jesus says that very thing. It's better to go to the house of weeping than the house of uh, laughter. And Jesus' demonstration, don't think he's sort of getting off free while he sends us all into that reality. His life is the greatest demonstration that these things are true. Jesus, the beloved son, is sent into horrific situations, and yet we know his life was blessed, and he was taken care of by God. He's showing us that simply because we have the power to satisfy a need doesn't mean we have God's permission to do so. And that the lie that Satan is telling us that we can, is that we can reverse engineer our circumstances to cast judgment on God's character, when instead we should do just the opposite. We should believe in God's character despite our circumstances. Now, and by the way, here, back to our question we're asking, what kind of Savior is Jesus? Jesus is a Savior who uses his power to save others, not to serve himself. He's here on his Father's business. And I hope you see now, and as we go forward, there's a sense in which these temptations that Jesus faces, they're unique to a supernatural person. You know, they're unique to a divine man. I do not have the ability to turn stone into bread, and therefore the temptation to do so would be ineffective for me. I don't know about you. We talk afterward. I'd be very interested to hear about that. But there's another sense in which the temptation he's facing is not at all unique. Don't we, don't we get tempted to disbelieve God's character and his plans for us? Is he really taking care of me? I mean, look at my circumstances. To, to measure God's character based on your circumstances instead of the other way around. So Jesus refuses because Jesus is a Savior who uses his power to save, not to satisfy himself. This is the kind of Savior we need. So let's keep reading. Verses 5 through 8. What kind of Savior is this? Jesus. Okay, verse 5. And the devil, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Pause. Wow, what an offer. Uh, it's not clear how, how Satan does this. What is the mechanism? Is this a vision? Is this sort of a, some kind of supernatural time travel that they're able to do? I don't know. It doesn't, you know, the passage doesn't really care to explain it. But it's clear that what happens is the devil shows Jesus a vision of all earthly power, every kingdom that exists seemingly for all time, and, of, and he offers it to him. You can have all this. Of course, there's a catch, verse 7. Uh, if then you will worship me, it will all be yours. What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't dispute the offer. He doesn't say, you can't offer that. <laughs> That's not yours to give away. Um, 
he doesn't. He doesn't say liar, you know, although he is, he's lying in a different sense. And as far as we know, as, and when we read the other books in the Bible, this is, seems like it's a legitimate offer. What is he offering? He's saying he will give his dark influence, his influence over humans who have turned away from God. I'll hand that all over to you. Okay, I'm going to let you run the ship. I'll still, I'll be one step up the org chart from you, but I'll, I'll let you do it. I'll let it do, do the way you want. And what's crazy is you look back at, for instance, the, the prophecy that's given to Mary from the angel Gabriel, and what's one of the things that's said about Jesus? Uh, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, check, and his king, of his kingdom there will be no end. And what's he being offered? Well, a kingdom with no end. So maybe we could just jump over the suffering part and go straight to the king of the world part. Doesn't sound too bad. I can see how that would be tempting. All cross, no crown. Other way around. All crown, <laughs> no cross. Okay? Can you see? But to do so would be the ultimate betrayal of his father. And so Jesus responds, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The ends don't justify the means. God cares how we get to the place he's called us to be just as much as he cares about that we get to the place he's called us to be. And so what kind of Savior is Jesus? It's a Savior. He's a Savior who accepts the cross before the crown. We have to do so too. Just one more temptation. What kind of Savior is Jesus? <coughs> Verse 9, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan takes Jesus up to, it says, the pinnacle of the temple, and historians uh, smarter than me uh, have told me that uh, this is some about 45 stories tall, 40, 450 feet off of the valley floor, uh, taken up there. It's written that people would get woozy and dizzy when they went up there, and so people avoided that area, but that's where he's led. And he says, why don't you jump off? This is a different tactic. <laughs> uh, and he even quotes Psalm 91. I mean, that takes a lot of boldness to, to quote the Bible to Jesus to get him to, to, to disobey, but you can see what he's doing. Um, now, uh, again, a little sidebar. This is not probably the main point of the passage, but I hope you see the pattern of Jesus in responding to temptation. What does he do? He quotes the Bible. Um, and in each case, he responds to temptation with a confident affirmation of God's word, seemingly from memory. He knows the Bible very well. And in this case, Satan tries to tempt Jesus using the Bible, misapplied, misinterpreted. And yet, if, if Jesus hadn't known the Bible so well, maybe he would have been brought, I mean, it's silly to speculate, but in, in applying this to ourselves, that's what we have to think. Here's the truth. If you aren't committed to growing in your knowledge of the Bible, your ability to know it, to lock it into your mind, into your heart, and to, to bring it out at times of temptation, you are signing up for greater vulnerability. You're volunteering for it. So, that's why we say a disciple, a whole disciple is a forgiven child who takes the next step, <coughs> excuse me, forgiven child of God who takes the next step to learn Jesus. It's part and parcel of what it means for us to be disciples of Jesus as we continue learning. Uh, and it's not just theoretical, it's entirely practical, as you can see here. Sidebar over. So, what exactly is Satan asking Jesus to do? Jump off 
Okay? We can tell what he's asking us, Jesus to do when we look at Jesus' response in verse 12. Just a moment. <clears throat> Been a little sick this week. Okay. <clears throat> and Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. To the test. What kind of test? The devil is encouraging Jesus to test God's trustworthiness, to test his power to save, to test his character, to test God's ability and interest in saving Jesus. Specifically, he's inviting Jesus to experience a supernatural affirmation of God's ability to save Jesus if he throws himself into death. He's saying, why don't you ask your father, take this and put it in your back pocket and experience where you throw yourself into the abyss, into darkness and death, so that you'll know for sure if you do that again one day, that he'll bring you back. He'll save you. If you jump, he'll do whatever God does, inflate a giant whoopee cushion down there. I don't know what he would do. Angels catch him. I don't know. But can you imagine? Now, why would he do this? Why would this tempt Jesus? Maybe you can already tell from the way I've described it. It seems clear at this point, Jesus understands his mission. He's on earth to experience death. Uh, not just physical death, but spiritual death. To be disconnected from the Father, to be unplugged from the source of life, to enter the abyss of, that, of deadness and all that it implies, all of its earthly manifestations, rejection and pain and misery and death. He's going to experience all those things. And so here's Satan's proposition. What if before all that, you had a deeply affirming, physical, concrete experience that if you throw yourself into that, not, not just for the ultimate time, but for every time along the way, that God will really catch you, save you. That if you give yourself over to him in the ultimate act of trust to die, that he won't just leave you in the grave. How do you know he's going to be faithful to his promise? Well, you can, let's do a practice run so you can have that in your back pocket and know that he will save you. Can you see how tempting that might be? Haven't you faced moments of difficulty and pain and suffering that you knew God was calling you to? And what if you could look back, like, like Jesus is being tempted to, to look back to a personal, physical experience of, of his saving power? Wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't, that? wouldn't that feel like it sort of solidified your faith, improved the relationship, you know? What's so wrong with a little test of faithfulness? Okay, if it's going to help me do what God has called me to do, well, let me give you a little illustration. Uh, let's say you move into a new neighborhood and uh, enjoying it, getting to know people. You got a neighbor, Bob. Bob does something weird, okay? Well, Bob does. You notice, you go out to get in your car for work each day. You seem to leave at about the same time. And Bob doesn't just sort of come out, beep, get in the car, take off, go to work. What Bob does is, Bob comes out, no beep, but first thing he does, he gets down, rolls over, slides under his car, and he's messing with stuff under there. What's he doing? You don't know. He does the same thing, same routine every day. Okay? About one or two minutes under there, comes out, gets in his car, and you see the brake lights come on about six or seven times, and then he drives off. What's he doing? Well, one day you're walking, dog, past Bob's house, you go, Bob, what are you doing under there? <laughs> what are you doing? And Bob says, oh, okay, this is the one weird thing I do, okay, is, you know, my wife and I have been married for 55 years, and just 
she loves me, I love her, and I know she promised me all those years ago, till death do us part, yada, yada, yada. She loved, I have no reason to think any different. But just to be safe, just so I know, I just check my brake lines. Every morning I check them, I've got a big life insurance policy, I get a little nervous, maybe she cut them. So I just go under there, I, ch- I feel around, and I figure, hey, now, it's funny, sort of a joke, but tell me, is that a relationship of trust? No, no, it's just, just for my, just so I know my car will stop. No, it's not a relationship of trust. It's a relationship built on distrust. This is what he's being tempted to do. Now, Jesus, we can learn, is a savior who takes God at his word. No tests, no tricks, no, no need for me to have my own personal experience to guarantee that you're going to come through for me. Simple trust, taking God at his word. I am the beloved son. Whatever you're leading me into will ultimately be for my good, whatever it is, even if it's dark, even if you call me to throw myself into the abyss, I know you'll save me. I don't need a practice run. I trust you. Now, as we look at these three temptations, it's, it's not hard to see that while his temptations are different from ours in the sense that, in many senses, but the challenges that he faced are we, we can all... Uh, relate to. And, and these three temptations, they really get at the heart of what it looks like for us to live as people under God's Word and under the power of the Spirit, being led by God. Jesus was tempted to use power to serve himself, to satisfy his own needs us, uh, uh, outside of what God wants us to use our power for. We're tempted by that too. We're tempted in the same way. Jesus was tempted to achieve his goals outside of God's will, to go around what God wants to get to what he had been called to. So are you. You're tempted in that way. Jesus was tempted to test God rather than taking him at his word. And so are you. You're tempted in that way. Jesus faced temptations that we all face, but he prevailed where we all fail. All of us fail. And the good news of this passage is that We face them and we have failed them, and yet Jesus fulfilled them on our behalf. And so there's one more thing for us to learn about our Savior from this passage. But to see it, we have to zoom out a little bit on the whole story of the Bible. So last time, what kind of Savior is Jesus? We've seen a few things. Last thing. Let's stop and ask ourselves, why? Why was Jesus tempted? Why did he have to wander around in the desert for 40 days? Why 40 days? Why did he have to be hungry? Why, did he, why this temptation to worship a false god? Why did he have this unusual personal dialogue with Satan trying to tempt him? Well, there are a few reasons. One of them is the book of Exodus tells us about God's people who wandered in the desert on the way to the promised land, on the way to what God had called them to, it was a journey of 11 days, should have taken 11 days, no less than a couple of weeks, ended up taking 40 years, 40, wandering in the desert, hungry. They got hungry along the way. They were tempted. They were tempted to worship other gods. Do you see what Jesus is doing? They were tempted to grumble against God, to say to God, is this how you treat the people you love? You say you love us? We wish we were back in Egypt. He, Jesus, spent 40 days wandering in the desert. He got hungry. He was tempted to grumble against God. He was tempted to false worship, 
to worship another God. But in every case where the Israelites failed all those years ago, Jesus prevailed. Jesus overcame. What is being shown to us is that Jesus is the true and faithful Israel, the fulfillment of God's people. Where Israel should have trusted God, Jesus is, is redoing, recapitulating. He's doing what they couldn't do. He's doing what they never did. He's, he's succeeding in all the places where we all fail. Jesus is giving humanity one big, massive redo through his faithfulness. But that's not all. Do you remember where Luke brings Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam, the son of God? And there's a reason for that. It's because Jesus was not the first son of God to face Satan's lies. He was not the first one to face them face-to-face with Satan. Do you remember this all those years ago? Back in the story of Genesis, it was God and Adam and Eve in the garden being tempted and failing and believing the devil's lies. Adam faced Satan and disbelieved God's word. He failed. He disobeyed. And we have inherited his sinful nature. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus, as we see here, is not like our first father, Adam. Jesus is the new and faithful Adam. Jesus is the true and better Adam. He didn't fail in the face of Satan's lies, but prevailed through the power of God's Holy Spirit. And while our first father, Adam, left us an inheritance of sin and sickness and judgment and death, Jesus has opened up to us a new place in a new family line. Not where we do not inherit disease and sickness and death, but we inherit life and every spiritual blessing. In fact, everything that can be said of Christ now through him and through his conquering in this passage can be said of us. All of his perfection, including him passing every test that was put toward him by Satan, is now ours. It's our conquering. It's our victory through Christ the King. This is the one we need. In fact, we can dare to say, it feels, it feels almost wrong to say, but because of what Jesus has done, we can take the words at his baptism and even apply them to ourselves. The Bible itself does it. Otherwise, it'd be almost too hard to believe. You are his beloved children. With you, he is well pleased. And everything that is going on in your life right now is a reflection of that truth. Everything. Even though every day you're being tempted by Satan to believe these three lies in particular. If you are really his child, shouldn't you use your power to serve yourself? If you're really his child, shouldn't you? And yet... The difference is you are filled with the power of his spirit, the same spirit that gave Jesus the power to be led into the wilderness, to be hungry and tempted at his most depleted state and yet victorious is in you. If you've trusted Christ, you have everything you need. You have the power to believe God's promises without any need of guarantee or first try. You have it within you. And so when we read these temptations, here's what this means. We should read these temptations like a middle-aged man watching a football game. You know what they say. We won! You won? No, you're not on the team. And yet in this case, we are. Jesus is there representing us. And we can say, we won! Through Christ, we have won. We, he has faced these temptations in our place for us to earn for us an inheritance that can never be taken away. An inheritance of power and dignity and glory through Christ. We can conquer the temptations 
that he has faced for us.